just before we turn to look at this particular chapter, I want to say thank you to all of you for the hard work you've been putting in in small groups and in other gatherings as we've worked our way through lamentations over these past weeks. There's been some interesting stories emerging from all sorts of different groups in terms of how people have been challenged and helped by what they've been reading. It's not been easy at times to do so, but it's been good. And it will be great at some stage after we finish the course um, of these Lent series to do some sharing of what God has been teaching and challenging us, both as individuals and as a church, as we've worked our way through the Book of Lamentations. As we turn to chapter 4, let's ask God to help us. Father God, may the Spirit who inspired the writer of this book also inspire our hearts this morning and turn them back to you. Amen. The survivors in Jerusalem see no end to their city. Their pain is continuous. Their lament has no end in sight. And this chapter goes over some of the same ground that they've already repeated two or three times before God. But there are two changes. The focus tends to move from the city physically to the people and what they're going through. And also, as we shall see, I think that there's a beginning of a move forward from the devastation that they're feeling. Last week in chapter 3, we encountered those special verses that Sarah Jane read for us at the beginning of the service. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They're fantastic words. But for the people in Jerusalem, they seem to have vanished as quickly as the dew does when the sun comes up. It's almost as if they've lost their way again. And I have to admit that those verses are some of the hardest that I've really struggled with over these past weeks and months as I've been looking at Lamentations, just to understand what they're about. Something has triggered an idea of God's faithfulness to them in the midst of the horror and the terror that they're going through. Claire last week said that it was a bit like seeing the glint of light or maybe looking for a glass bead amongst gravel. You see it and then it's gone again. Or I wonder, and maybe it's me reflecting on some of my own personal experiences, that there are times when I've read verses like those And say, God, it's not like that. Where are you? You've lost us. You've walked away from us. Can I trust what you say in your words? Whichever of those ways you look at it, those verses themselves are used, they're not a direct quote from anywhere else, but there are words very similar to them that are used on three different occasions in the Old Testament. And in each case... They're used to compare the faithfulness of God with the waywardness of his people. One of them is before the exile and two of them are after the exile in terms of those occurrences. 
Because chapter 4 starts as if the people had forgotten any clue as to God's love and care. And they're back to feeling abandoned, destitute, unwanted, cast out, thrown away, put on the ash heap, literally, in the words that he used. And yet through this chapter, there are a number of changes which is worth looking at and thinking about because I think they help us when we come into those situations where we feel at rock bottom and that God is no longer with us. So there's a change of tone in this chapter. The poetic style itself changes. The acrostic of A left to tour, the A to Z of their suffering is still there in the layout of the verses. But the stanzas are changed from three lines to two. The commentators describe the chapter as being less intense than the previous ones. Or one of them puts it as it's in a minor key now. Now, I wonder whether those of you who've who've held babies that are crying badly may recognize this pattern. Over time, the sobbing slowly begins to quieten down to a whimper. And then there's that time of a sort of peaceful rest that comes. And I think we're beginning to see this in this chapter, and we'll look at it in more detail shortly. In the previous chapters, as the people have lamented, they've also complained to God. and said, God, why are you doing this to us? What's going on? And it's very clear that God is the intended audience. But as you read through this chapter, with the possible exception of verse 13, the focus is very much a description on how things are. And it's very hard to see who the intended audience of the words is. It's almost, and maybe you've experienced this as well in times of desperation, as if they're speaking into a vacuum. God, if you left us, are you no longer hearing us? Are we just speaking to ourselves? Also, the mode of description changes. And they use the Hebrew poetry's parallelism, the idea where the first part of a, of a verse and the second part, either in, when the second either intensifies the first or is a contrast to it. And they're using the contrast here. It's in nearly all of the verses. They're saying, that's what was. This is what is, as they work through. The comparison emphasizes the degree of change. Verse 5 is an example. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal people, in royal purple, now lie on ash heaps or embrace ash heaps. Think maybe of somebody who lived in Coventry through the bombing of the cathedral there. They could simply describe the ruins. But it's far more devastating if they say this is what the beautiful medieval cathedral used to look like. And this is what it now is, with just a few of the outside walls standing. That contrast, not necessarily of an imagined past, 
very much of a real past to what is now. God, what are you doing in this? And then in verse 17, there's a change from first person singular to plural. It's continued on into chapter 5. We hear the words of the community, not just the individual words being spoken. That sense of we're in this together, in the mess that we find ourselves. God, what are you going to do for us as a community? And these changes in tone move the lament forward, I believe, from what's been there in the previous three chapters. And there's a change in that attitude to what has happened. For my Lent reading this year, I've been using a book by Andrew Watson, the Bishop of Guildford, and he's looking at the desert wandering in Exodus just before the people begin to enter into the promised land. And Bishop Andrew points out that as the people prepare to move from the immediate exodus from Egypt through the wanderings in the desert into the new land, God makes a whole bundle of promises about the nature of that new land and about his presence with them as they go into it. And he makes a covenant with them a promise to them. But like any ancient Near East covenant, it's made up of three parts. There's a declaration of care for the people by the ruler. Based in this case with God, it's not on the ruler's power, but on God's love. That wonderful phrase in Deuteronomy 7. It's not because you deserved it, because you were bigger or stronger or greater than any of the nations around but I loved you because I love you because I love you. Alongside that, there are stipulations on how the people are expected to live. We find them in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and those chapters we, we tend to sort of get bogged down in and skip on because we don't think they're relevant. But they are because in there, there is these wonderful descriptions of the way in which God wants us to live and to behave and to act. Ways which will produce a sustainable community, a prosperous community, a community where none is injured, where all are cared for. A delight to live in. And then the third part of those covenants was a warning which we find at the end of Deuteronomy that if those stipulations are not followed, there will be consequences. Not least that if we aren't living the way God wants us to, society begins to fall apart. But for those at this stage, maybe they are beginning, as they already have done in, in the early part of Lamentations, begun to say, Lord, that's where we've gone wrong. You know, we are culpable for the situation we now find ourselves in. Chapter 4 itself, as you work through it, records what some commentators have called a great reversal. It's almost as if they've revisited those chapters of them coming out of the wilderness into the promised land. And they're beginning to piece by piece see how those promises 
have fallen away from them. It's shown in the way in which the parallelism works as well here. So what are the people lost? Moses asked God and said, I want somebody, God, to come with me, to help me as I go into the promised land. And God says, no, you won't have anybody to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be with you and lead you in. And symbolically, I will rest in the temple. That was what was. What is now, verse 1, the sacred stones are scattered at every street corner. The stones that made up the temple representing God's presence, lying as so much rubble in the streets. In exile, Ezekiel has that horrifying vision of the glory of the Lord removing itself from the temple. That's gone. In verses 5 and 9, they were supposed to be going into a land flowing with milk and honey. But it's become a place of devastating hunger. In verse 15, the priests who had the authority to declare people unclean and to send them out of the city for quarantine purposes, they are now the ones who are cast out and told, get away from us. There's blood on your hands. You haven't done what God wanted. Stay away from us. And in verse 20, the king, that holder of God's anointing, is now either in exile, if it's a reference to Jehoiakim, or is tortured and dead, if it's Zedekiah. Can you see what's going on? Each of those things which they were promised is slowly being stripped away from them. In verses 3 and 10, a compassionate society, living in covenantal faithfulness, has become heartless. Verse 10 reads that compassionate women have cooked their own children. What makes that verse even more devastating for me is when you recognize that the Hebrew root for compassion is the same as the Hebrew root for a womb. That safe place, that place where there should be nurture and comfort has gone. And maybe it's summed up for them in verse 6 with the mention of Sodom. Sodom is a synonym, yes, for sexual sin. But the writer of Lamentations uses sexual sin and, and that sort of thing as a picture of, God, of, God, of the people's covenantal unfaithfulness to God. That they've committed adultery by going awry and away from God's um, directions. The NIV has the punishment of God's people is greater than that of Sodom. And I guess if you read it in that way, it's comparing what happens in an earthquake against the devastation of the siege and the destruction of the city. But most translate that as the transgression of my people is greater than that of Sodom. There's a rebellion against God that's going on here. And piece by piece, all the covenant promises are falling apart. And maybe read like this, chapter 4 becomes an embryonic confession. 
of where they've walked away, of where they haven't loved God as God wanted them to, that they've ignored what all the prophets had said, that they'd actually ignored the promise that all the prophets had as well, of turn back to me, says God, and I will put my loving arms around you and care for you. Not least Jeremiah, who'd spent the previous 40 years trying to persuade the people to listen to what God was actually saying and not what the other prophets and priests were saying when there's, yes, there's peace when there wasn't any. Those of you who've been in morning prayer over the past few weeks, we've been reading through Jeremiah. And it is fascinating just comparing the words there with what we find here in Lamentations. There's a willful walking away. And in verse 17, as that poem moves to first-person plural, we begin to find an element of corporate culpability being voiced. The biggest failure of all is that when threatened, the people hadn't turned back to God, but they'd gone looking for another saviour in one of the other countries around. But I believe that this recognition or where the people had wandered away leads to a change in hopefulness as well. A change in hopefulness. By the end of chapter 4, the people are at rock bottom. They've recognized the reversal of all that God had promised them, and they begin to recognize some of their own culpability for that. And they start to lay that before God. And there is this wonderful phrase in verse 20. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. Or literally, your punishment, it is finished. That light of the hope of a God who will accept us back when we've rebelled, when we've walked away, when we've rejected him. He does not reject us, but longs for us. And that sentiment of God's longing to come back and comfort us is there in Isaiah of the Exile, in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that our hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that's really the setting of Isaiah 40 to 55. And if you want to see an answer to Lamentations, read those chapters with all their echoes for us of the passion of Christ and the cross. Those words at the end of Lamentations 4 are the beginning of a new part of the journey. The boiling baby of chapters 1 to 3 has become a whimpering one by the end of chapter 4, maybe even at that point of an uneasy rest. This chapter 5 begins, and sorry for preaching next week, I'm just going to pinch the verse at the start of this one. Chapter 5 begins, Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. That sense of a hopefulness beginning to come in 
as they receive God's word of mercy, to then say, remember us, O Lord. It's not a phrase that we've really found before in the book. They're words reminiscent of the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Chapter 4 indicates a change for them. But that was 2,600 years ago or thereabouts. What has any of this to do with us in Christchurch in March 2023? I think if the contents of this chapter don't challenge us, then we're missing something. Because they point to a need for us also to become a changed people. In the middle of chapter 4, in verse 12, we read this. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Or in simple terms, it couldn't happen here. When the Assyrians took out Samaria and left Jerusalem unscathed, one has that sense that that was what was being said in Jerusalem. It couldn't happen here. There's a story told of an 18th century prequel to the Alpha Course. And uh, the Countess of Huntingdon had invited some of her titled friends to an evangelistic supper. And I'm not sure whether it was Wesley or Whitfield she'd invited along as speaker. On the way out, one of those titled friends was overheard saying, Sin, that's for the servants. It couldn't happen here. Read through the chapter. And you can see how the people of Jerusalem had got so caught up in their surrounding culture that they'd forgotten the first call on their lives was to love God and to love neighbor. Wealth and materialism had taken control of the gold of verse 1. Trampling on others to get what they wanted, verse 3. A lifestyle characterized by expensive clothes and a diet to match. Now brought low by where one commentator describes beautifully as the democratization of deprivation. Verse 5, that is. They were trusting in political structures rather than trusting in God. Verse 17. And if you go back to Jeremiah 7, the temple is being used as a good luck charm, not as a place to worship Yahweh. As I reflected on those changes, they sounded very familiar because we're right back to what we've been looking at in the Sermon on the Mount over these past months. That call individually and corporately to follow God in his ways and all these things will be added unto you. That call for humility which sets at odds as much of the triumphalism and the meism in our own culture and in the Western church. And that call found in the old prayer book communion confession to bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed. 
I don't know about you, but for me, that's a constant battle of fighting where I know I fall short of what God wants and what God asks of me. I suspect you're much the same. And that's why we use that form of confession each Sunday. God is righteous and just, but he's also merciful and patient with us. He longs more than anything else to gather us back in his arms. When Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, that was the context of his words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Let's continue to use this season of Lent to reflect on what God is calling us to, to identify where we are rebelling and to turn back to a merciful God who longs to put his arms around us and welcome us home. One of the commentaries that some of us have been using for this series is by a Korean-American, Sung Chan Ra. We read it at the last Theology Book Club, and it was good to be able to talk it through. But he writes this, and I want to leave us with this, and then I'll lead us in prayer. There is a future glory for Zion, he writes, but that future glory is based upon the mercies of our God. God is not impressed by what we have done or what we are doing, but instead, he honors what he is going to make us, what he does in us and through us. And I would want to add to that if we let him. Are we willing to do that? To turn back to him? To look at the ways in which we are living our lives at the moment and say, Lord, show us the ways we need to change. Let's be quiet for a moment, then I'll lead us in prayer.